to really connect with people that have gone through the same thing and then to have discussions and you're not going to walk away from these discussions with the answer but you will walk away from these discussions with a sense of inner peace knowing that somebody else has experienced something similar you know it might be it might be a different type of addiction it might be a different type of depression but at least it's you know you're speaking the uh, the same language you know and mm-hmm. and and learning from each other's stories and i think that's the key is to put it on the table rather than you know brush it off into a corner under the rug because when you do that it doesn't work and it leads to further dysfunction and and further baggage and more anxiety Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever our curiosity takes us. It is through these conversations we hope to provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life. My guest today is Andy Vasili, returning to the podcast. This is a continuation of our first episode, which took place just before New Year's, actually on New Year's, prior to 2020, which now given the wake of COVID-19, the conversation, while still relevant, does have a different tone than what the world is experiencing at large right now. And it is still relevant in the sense that what we cover is almost even more applicable today than it was prior to. Andy in this conversation shares how he deals with darkness and how his family has dealt with darkness, which usually helped in a form of movement. And beyond that, we talk about just life in general as a exploration of continued self-discovery. At no matter what stage you are in life, you're always continuing to discover new things about who you are in this world. And as the world takes a collective pause because of COVID-19, this kind of conversation is just as powerful as it when we initially recorded it. So with that, everyone, please enjoy this second conversation with Andy Vasili. Welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity, and we're actually joined with part two with Andy Vasili. Hey, Andy. Hey, how how you doing, man? It's funny that a few weeks ago we were recording in, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I was there, and now I'm in Japan. So I know. I, I'm from one <laughs> climate to a completely different climate, and it is now about an hour, just an hour and a half before New Year's here. <laughs> Well, hopefully we can we can get you out of here before New Year's. I'll just be walking the streets and enjoying uh, the sights. So okay, well that's cool. Either way, you're you're bringing me around the world with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah. So to kind of recap what happened last time, we were cut short because you had to go make dinner for your family, which is totally fine. And it, yeah. it, it was kind of going in line with the theme of our conversation in part one, anyways, with talking about deep, meaningful connections and making time for those that matter most to you. And in this one, I kind of wanted to get into a little bit more of your personal story. And a lot of that comes down to is dealing with your own personal darkness, as a lot of people would say. 
And I don't know if you want to just take it from there, if there's any other preface you want to do. Yeah. So I, I guess I, I would, you know, when, when we look at darkness, I mean, we all experience darkness in different ways. And, and some of us are better with actually coming to grips with the darkness that we experience. Some people push it out and lock it out and don't let it in. And I think when you lock it out and you don't let it in, that's when other things that aren't so good for us creep in and kind of mask what we have to deal with to, to move forward. And, you know, for, for me, it was, it was growing up in a, in a family where there was mental illness, there was, there was addiction, there was depression, just try to stay away from it and go to far corners of the house just to be away from it. Mm -hmm. There was uh, five of us in the family. I was youngest in the family. And for me, it was easy to escape as the youngest person and just kind of find my own little area of the house to be in and, and do my own thing. But, you know, it, it's like the depression and the, the addiction as you, you know, when you experience it and you move forward, there's lots of different things that you can learn from it. And I think it took me a long time to learn the things I needed to learn to move forward in very proactive ways in my life. Yeah, it's definitely a hard thing because when it's just around you in every environment, you can't really, there's no escape from it. Like if it's at school or somewhere else like that, it's like your your area of safety is compromised. And so all you can do is just kind of close yourself off as, as much as you can. And it's, yeah, definitely, yeah. it's definitely a hard thing to be around that. And one of the books I'd recently read over uh, 2019 was called uh, I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terrence Real. I found that book to be super insightful for stuff like this. We're dealing with family trauma or just abusive relationships within the family unit to kind yeah. of recontextualize what depression or mental illness might look like. The, the premise of the book, for those who are not familiar, is the difference between covert or overt depression. And most of us are familiar with overt depression, which is the standard signs, whereas covert depression winds up looking at the complete opposite, where they become workaholics or abusive, yeah. stuff like that, were like destructive forces to those around them. And, you know, that's kind of what it sounds like you're describing is this opposite end of the spectrum to some degree. Yeah, yeah, it, it was interesting because, you know, having lived around the world, I, I've, you know, we've lived in five different countries and I think that you see the way different cultures deal with these things. Oh, wow. And a lot of cultures really shut it down and you don't talk about it. It's never a topic of discussion. Whereas I think North America is probably on the, the North America, Australia, New Zealand, I think dealing with these things in a positive way mm -hmm. where there are still a lot of cultures that put them on the back burner and don't want to deal with them you know? Yeah. And the only way forward is to deal with them and to learn about them and to discuss them with those that matter most and to make yourself vulnerable and ask for help when you need it. And those, those are the big things that, that I learned over the years is to really connect with people that have gone through the same thing and then to have discussions. And you're not going to walk away from these discussions with the answer, but you will walk away from these discussions with a sense of inner peace 
knowing that somebody else has experienced something similar. You know, it might be it might be a different type of addiction. It might be a different type of depression. But at least it's you know you're speaking the uh, the same language you know and mm-hmm. and and learning from each other's stories, and I think that's the key is to put it on the table rather than you know brush it off into a corner under the rug, because when you do that it doesn't work, and it leads to further dysfunction, and and further baggage and more anxiety. Like for me, when I, when the reason I kind of got into this whole me- mental illness or mental health space was a relationship of mine. I had gotten into a relationship and she was for all intents and purposes, completely fine. And I would never have known. And then all of a sudden she came out and told me that she had severe anxiety and depression and she was taking medications for it and kind of went through the gamut of like growing up with this thing or being diagnosed with this severe medication resistant version of it. And I got to see not only what the standard medical practices do to people, but then also the stigma around it where she was not even comfortable sharing anything about it because she thought I was going to judge her for it. And that drove me to want to understand because I was once curious because I'm like, how could someone have this debilitating disease, but for all other outwardly signs, this person should be able to excel in society is kind of the way I saw it. You know, because this person had taken this identity of this disease and that kept them from like achieving in school as much as they'd wanted to because they're anxious or things like that. And so for me, that that's kind of where this entry point came in, whereas because I cared about someone, I wanted to be able to understand them. And all of a sudden that opened up all of this extra stuff about being vulnerable and and not being so afraid because I think half of this comes from the stigma that the person who has, has this, these feelings that say, why am I different? Or why can't I just be happy? And I think that's the wrong way to go about it because it's not fair for one, that person, because to look at someone else and say they're probably happy all the time is not, not true regardless of diagnosis or not. You know, we, it's, I think it's just kind of managing your speed bumps is probably a better way of looking at it. Yeah. That's a really good way to look at it and managing the speed bumps and, and one of the things that I've learned this year in regards to what you're saying, managing the speed bumps, is this idea of New Year's resolutions and what a perfect time to talk about it. I'm in Hiroshima, Japan, 90 minutes away from New Year's. I think you're 15 hours away yeah. still. <laughs> I got the time zone wrong tonight, but, but it's this idea of I am not setting a New Year's resolution this year because new, you know, whenever we begin to set these big goals in our life, they always seem to be a start and stop at the end of a so-called cycle. So it might be at the end of the first term of, of university. You know, you start the winter semester, then you conclude it, and then you start a new cycle, and then you have all of these goals. Or it might be at the end of the winter holidays when you've indulged in a lot of food and a lot of drink, mm-hmm. and you put on a few pounds, and then suddenly you want to set this huge goal for yourself. And ultimately, we know, based on research, that, you know, 70 to 80% of New Year's resolutions fail within 15 days because it's this big goal kind of thinking, right? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with setting goals. I am a huge believer in setting goals. But the way I'm looking at it now was swayed and impacted by 
some some reading that I had done a few months ago by Michael Murphy. Have you ever heard of the Esalon Institute yep. in California? Michael Murphy talked about having these these moral way stations. So you're driving your car down the freeway, you know, or your the trucks are going down the the freeway, and then they have to pull off into a way station. They get weighed and they move on, and that's how I'm looking at this. I'm gonna. Uh, pull over, I'm going to go into this way station just to kind of evaluate what I'm carrying with me, what I need to tweak, what I need to modify, what I need to let go. But it's more, obviously the truck, if it's going to pull off the road and go to the way station, it has a destination. So on my own pursuit and my own destination of where I'm going, this is just a checkpoint, you know, along yeah. the way. So I'm not going to set this big resolution. If I want to eat better, I'm not going to put this huge pressure on myself to, to eat vegan just because it's good for me. I'm just going to choose to eat better yeah, and then check in along the way. And it's okay if you mess up. It's okay if you screw up. You don't judge yourself. You learn from it, but you try not to repeat the same mistakes. So I think when it you know, if we kind of go back to the, the darkness thing, mm -hmm. if our goal is mental wellness, then we just have to continually check in and allow ourselves, I guess, time to make mistakes. We know we're going to make mistakes and, and just learn and move forward and reflect and continue to, to check in with ourselves. So that's how I'm looking at New Year's uh, this New Year's, you know, this New Year's. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I really like that idea of, of like checking in with yourself or giving your, I, I like to think about it, and this is taken from Tim Ferriss, but he does like two-week experiments. Like if you're trying to create any new habit, instead of doing, you know, like this big goal thing, like I'm going to do this for three months or I'm going to do this for six months. He says, no, do something small, like make like one small little tweak, do it for about two weeks. And if you feel better or enjoy doing it over those two weeks, then you keep doing it and you just keep doing that over and over again. And eventually you'll find something that sticks or a version of the thing that you're trying to accomplish. That's going to stick for you because I think that's a lot of the problem is when people get started into something, they have one day where they slip up and they like, wow, look at, I'm so undisciplined and I'm so, so this, that, and the other thing, like I'll just keep messing up or whatever. And I just think they talk themselves out of continuing from one mistake, which is totally fine in the grand scheme of things. If you're really committed to something over the long term. A New Year's resolution, bang, you're going to be spot on for six, seven days in a row. You know, you'll eat well, you'll go to the gym every day, you'll stay on, on schedule with your running, whatever it is. But then when you do slip up, which inevitably you're going to slip up, you know, when you look at it more in terms of the long run, then you're not going to self-judge and you're, you're going to allow yourself some freedom and some space. But then it's like getting back on, getting back on track right away. Yeah. Judgment get back the long run is what's most important. And I think that's what I'm really learning, you know, and, and really accepting and really embracing. And, you know, for, for you, it, with the work you're doing to know this early, I wish I would have known this, you know, when I was out of university because it would have made such a massive difference. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I think that's that everything we're learning about peak performance and, you know, 
being our best is deeply rooted in self-forgiveness, is deeply rooted in this long-term vision of what we need to focus on in order to achieve the success that we want to achieve. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird weird thing for me because this this path that I've taken in, into this idea of like what is performance is is a long one. Honestly, like I I never would have never would have thought I'd even be anywhere close to talking about things like this or even this interested in performance like this. And you know, I, to be frankly honest, I had a fixed mindset in in a very specific category when it came to movement for 21 years of my life. I would look I'd look at other students, and we talked about that in part one. And then that was kind of what it was the catalyst for everything here. And a lot of that was basically be summed up into I gave myself the okay to try and to not look at someone else and say they weren't like me. I mean, realistically, that is a true statement. Nobody is like you. <laughs> so you kind of just yeah. have to figure things out on your with your own accord and your own drive and just understand that it's a process and sometimes the hardest thing to do is just to take the first step because once you take the first step, then the second step has a little bit more momentum behind it and so on and so forth. <laughs> so how, how do you feel that you were able to, to realize that, to take action? I would probably say I'm a really self-driven person, but the other part of it was it was a really futuring – this is from my work with Compete to Create that I figured this out though, but it was having a vision for for movement specifically i remember looking at my coworkers and seeing them sitting in their cubicles and working like eight hours a day sitting behind a desk not being super active many of them were in their like maybe early 30s or so and i started seeing their expanding waistlines and they would complain about like back pain or joint pain and they had just gotten kids or something close to that and i was like man that seems so young to to have these problems. And I was like, well, I don't want to be that dad who can't even go outside and run and play with his kids. Yeah. And, and so I looked at my life and said, well, here's this big category called exercise or working out that I haven't touched with a 10 foot pole, but right now seems to be the best time ever because I'm working already in my field. I got about two, three more years of college to finish. And now is a, a good a time as any to try and make this habit because if once I finish school, I'm not going to get any busy, like not busier. Basically, it's not going to just evaporate all this busyness that's going to happen in my life. So if I can create a habit now while I'm balancing work and school, then by the time I am 30, it'll be no no big deal to keep this habit going. And so that's why that's that's what I did. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what I'm that's... still doing. I'm 26 to this day, almost 27, a couple months. And that's the whole reason it's not about being like a bodybuilder or a, an Olympic weightlifter or whatever. It's just like, how do you do this? So you can keep your body moving for like a, a functional level for as long as you can. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a beautiful way to look at it. And that's, uh, that is exactly the work that I'm doing, you know, and the work that I'm doing is all about how can I work with teachers? So I do a lot of work with physical education departments around the world and, and I, you know, I'm going to Korea and the reason why I'm going to Korea is to work with a school. So I just kind of plan this trip around that consulting work. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Dr. John Rady, have you heard the podcast with Dr. John Rady with Michael Gervais? I think I did listen to that. 
Yeah. So Dr. John Brady, um, he's from Harvard uh, School of Education, and he is one of the first uh, researchers and scientists to look deeply into the power of physical activity in our lives. And when we continue to, you know, I guess when I go back to my the darkness and the depression, the one thing that was a guiding reference point for me was physical activity and sport through it all. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I did my TED Talk. I talked about, which was very difficult to do, but I talked about, you know, my one brother dying of addiction and my other brother committing suicide. And I had to really reflect deeply on my own life after I lost my second brother. It was the hardest thing to kind of look at what was it within myself that allowed me to move forward in ways that my brothers couldn't. And I, I really looked hard and then I realized, well, from as early as I can remember, I was outdoors and moving. Mm-hmm. I was riding bikes. I, and then I, that led to riding bikes and cl- climbing cliffs and climbing trees and playing soccer and football and whatever I could do. And that was my escape from the house, you know. And then that led to playing American football which I say American football because we're abroad, yeah. right? If I football, it's soccer. But that led to me playing American football. I was a quarterback and a punter. And and that led to me playing um, at the collegiate level, five years as a quarterback and a punter. And I had a pro tryout. And that was really my saving grace. And I realized that after my my brother Chris died, in 2014, the one that committed suicide. And I, I realized, oh my God, I've been blessed with a moving body. Mm-hmm. And I've been blessed with finding the power in movement. And John Rady, going back to Dr. John Rady, now it's brain science. I mean, the, the, the impact of physical activity on the neurochemistry of our brain is extraordinary. And they're figuring out more and more day by day, you know, like it's, they're finding out so much more about the impact of physical activity on the brain. So, you know, what you're describing and, you know, being active and exercising speaks volumes for what people need to do in their darkest moments, you know, and my brother who committed suicide, his happiest times were when he was working out regularly. And he had done it for about five years, uh, five or six years, and then he stopped doing it. And, you know, it's just like this thing that you just got to, you got to, in your darkest moments, when it's so hard to get out of bed, and it's the middle of winter, and it's dark outside, all you have to do is to put your body into an erect position and put your feet on the floor, and then that's the first step to move towards the door. You know, and I, I firmly believe this and I share this every talk that I give, every presentation that I give, I, I share this with educators around the world. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really powerful story because we don't think how powerful movement is because a lot of the people in modern society contextualize, you know, working out in the wrong way in just that exact sentence. It's working out. 
So it sounds like extra work when you have yeah. a job, you're already tired most of the time, or you know, you just don't feel like you should be going to do these things. And I started recontextualizing this word recently with, you know, how the the compete to create team kinds of calls it is like moving well, or you can just call that movement. Because I think that adds a, a barrier of entry for someone who may not may not want to be an athlete or older. So that that idea of being an athlete is out of their frame of reference. So that lowers that, that entry point that so much that whatever you do, however you do it, and we kind of preface this in the first episode, is, is really helpful. And then kind of going back, as you're explaining that with like this new neuroscience overlay on what is happening in the body, it reminds me of the quote, get out of the mind and into the body. Mm. And I'm not 100% sure who first quoted that, but I heard that on Tim Ferriss's podcast many, almost two years ago now, and I'd already been working out for a little while. And this is before all of the mindfulness and mindset craze had kind of started taking over the world. I think Headspace had probably just been around for a couple of years at that point. And I was like, huh, that's interesting because I hadn't gotten into mindfulness or meditation yet. And I was like, you know what? That does seem about right because I feel better when I go to the gym, even if it's days that I don't feel like I really want to be there. Even if I'm there for just 30 minutes doing like whatever I need to do to get done, you know, check a box, you know, because we all have those days. I did feel a lot better. And so I started talking about it to my friends and saying like, do you know, does it feel like like a Zen moment for you? Because I remember (laughs) like it was my early earliest forms of for me of like finding this point where I could just go to the gym, put on like a music or a podcast and just kind of forget about what was going on in my brain and just be, you know, focusing on the movement of the weight or how, like, how is my gait on the treadmill if I'm trying to like do runs or something and just kind of check out like the frontal lobe of my brain, <laughs> which yeah. as an engineer and someone who's pretty intellectual, being able to shut off your brain for any amount of time is pretty spectacular. So I couldn't recommend it enough for most people. <laughs> Yeah, and and what I would what I would say, and I think for for me it was kind of the same thing. Like I shut down a lot of thinking when I was exercising, but then my most I, I don't want to say my most profound moments, but I would say some pretty impactful moments in my life came when I was I didn't listen to music, you know. So if I had a burning question in my life, whether it be a personal or a professional question. Um, about something I needed to answer or figure out. If if I just put the music away mm-hmm. or and the podcast away, and I said, okay, here is my burning question, and then I set out on my eight-mile run, mm-hmm. you know, it's amazing. If I stick to that, you talk mindfulness in motion, meditation in motion, you know, there's no one definition of meditation. And today you know, what you're describing about, you know, just wanting to get out and go do it. And it's difficult. So we're in Japan, we're at our host family here in Japan, they're beautiful people. Uh, We've known them for 20 years. Last night, I was I had some Japanese rice wine, some sake with uh, my host family father. And we were just reminiscing on old times and both their family and my family have been through a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, so and we've been there for each other over the years and we were just reflecting on our lives and the fact that we've known each other for 20 years and that 
my family is back in Japan visiting them. So we had quite a bit of sake. (laughs) And then I woke up in the morning and I thought, oh my God, I feel like shit. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I, I feel like shit. But I know that the mountain that we run up for, for the last 20 years is right behind us. Mm-hmm. And, and my, I woke my wife up, and then she went and got coffee. And then we started on this run up the mountain, and it's a, it's a beast of a mountain behind us. We made it to the top. As I was thinking about the question and these answers were coming to my mind, I'm, I'm just running through the, the trails, and then I'm getting all of these ideas. And that has been what I've done the last 10 years mm-hmm. is I, I set out when I really need to, to focus on a question in my life. I set out with no music, no podcast, and I just let the answer. But it's going back to this idea of we don't necessarily have to shut the brain down to thinking. We can have this reference point and, and we can say, okay, today in the, my workout, whatever I'm doing, this is my burning question. This is what I'm going to think about. And the answers will come to you because everything lights up in the brain and, and you're at your creative best when you're running and moving, you know, and that's, that's the power of movement in itself. So it can be used to spark creativity and deepen creativity and to give you the answers that you, you need. But in meditation, when we return to the breath, use this this kind of like driving question strategy. Mm-hmm. You just return back to the question rather than the breath. Uh, so if you get distracted, return you return to the question. And that's what I do because I get distracted. And when I was running down the hill, the mountain today, I, I got distracted. Oh, there's my question I need to have to um, not give me a solution, but to help me in what I need to know. That's so cool. I really like that. I never even thought about it that way before, but it makes a lot of sense because what meditation and mindfulness is supposed to be teaching you is how to focus better because how many times yeah. do we focus on our breath? And so if we can learn how to focus, you know, the easy answer is focus on your breath. Then you can then transition that awareness basically onto anything. And it makes a lot of sense because that's where if to deeply focus is to deeply think and therefore you can solve just about any problem if you're able to just kind of put as much of your horsepower if that's what the analogy you want to put on it <laughs> onto exactly. that problem <laughs> exactly so so here what's it you, that you have going into the new year <sighs> honestly it's been a lot of thinking on how to understand a lot of the positive psychology. So we're, we're, we're reading the book flourish right now and, and compete to create. Yeah. And, I, and I've been thinking about how to make some of these ideas more accessible to just about every person, because I, you know, this book is kind of old at this point, but I'm, or not old. It's a couple of years old at this point, but the research seems to be, be around since like 2009. I'm like, why, how is this the first time I've ever heard of this stuff? And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm the more I read this book, the more I'm like, Hey, I kind of do all these things. And it seems like I'm predisposed to kind of having some of these same ideas or use these tools already without meaning it. And so I'm kind of try to, how do I take what I do innately and package that in a way that makes it like teachable or trainable for other people? <laughs> so do you, and I don't want to get off topic with the podcast, yeah. but I just have a 
questions for you. But when you say, how do you do what's innate, mm-hmm. was that always with you or was it something that you worked to develop over the years? Because it sounds like you learned a lot and then you continued to learn these things and apply what you're learning. So you consider it innate now, mm-hmm. but, but I think it sounds like you worked hard to develop that. Yeah. Or, or did you always have it? I would say for the most part, I'm a pretty optimistic or positive person. So that's why I would say innate where it's like, I'm able to kind of brush off against failure. I think my biggest detractor growing up was the, the self critic of holding my own self back out of either fear or some other negative emotion, be it anxiety or, you know, just psychologically closing myself off from certain topics. That was my, I think that was my biggest problem where I really didn't, like, for instance, when I graduated college or high school, I didn't know what I wanted to pick for a degree, but I knew I wanted to pick something that was as broad as possible that would open as many doors. But I had so many different ideas because, as you could tell by this podcast, my my curiosity and, and depth of topics is ri- ridiculous. Like, I am interested in almost any and every subject you could <laughs> you could ever ask on the planet. I could find something interesting that will capture my attention. So that was really hard for me to want to just pick a singular topic going into college. But I knew that whatever I decided to pick, I would be able to come out the end of it with a degree. Didn't matter what it was. And I don't know where that comes from (laughs) because up until that point in college, I kind of just assumed um, like I, I had a baseline level of intelligence, but I just knew that if I put my time and effort into something, I would be able to come out the underside and be able to perform within the top, you know, like 80% or whatever. Like, because I just know my own work ethic is that I'll just figure it out. Like when the going gets tough, I'll just put my head to the grindstone and keep going, which is a very working out mind, like mentality, but I, I just have that kind of trait about me. Yeah, and, and that's that's very cool. And when you say that you want to be able to teach others how to apply it. I guess my biggest thing is that I've done the same over the years with my consulting and it was always about how can, what can I teach others? How can I teach it to them? But it ultimately the, the question came back to what do I need to know, learn more of about myself in order to teach it better. So I flipped that desire to, want to help others apply it to what do I need to learn about myself before I can apply it, right? And then once I can learn more about myself and then I feel I can deliver what I've learned more naturally to others, Mm -hmm. right? So, and that's just an endless pursuit of learning about oneself, right? I just think for me, it's I just have a really deep-seated responsibility for... Like, I can't honestly sit across from anyone, and like, even in this podcast, like, what I talk about is is what I do for the most part. Like, I can't, like, I hold myself to such a higher standard that I will never say anything unless it's, like, just factually incorrect. Like, I just don't, didn't understand it well enough that I have to be doing a thing before I can even ever suggest it to someone else. Or if I have like read the research and say, okay, here's like what the research might be saying. I haven't done it, but this might seem like a positive thing. Like I like to do my homework. And uh, the, one of the things that really struck me over the last couple of years was like basically people who can aggregate the internet 
which is like, what are all the good things that see everyone, like a certain subsection of people seem to be doing or pursuing. And it seems to be like these little nexus points of all the things that seem to be working and okay, let's keep pulling on those threads and keep finding all the things that keep working and compounded on each other because the, we can just keep getting better basically. <laughs> yeah. And that's ultimately what peak performance is all about, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's just kind of a little insight a little into bit. how I think <laughs> or why, why it is that I do what I do for, for a lot of this stuff and kind of give it away to the world without even asking for anything. Yeah. And that's, I think that's when you, when you, and that's one of the things that I've done over the years is, you know, when I started my blog, I started my blog in 2000 that I wanted in return for starting my blog. I just started my blog and I was blogging. Then I found as I was writing every day, nonstop, I was learning so much about the way that I was teaching and I was just putting it out there you know, uncensored thoughts about the way I was teaching. And I didn't even think for a second about how is this going to impact other people. And then slowly my blog started to kind of gain some traction. And, and then even though I knew it was gaining traction, I continued to just write for myself and put it out. And I think that was one of the things that, it's just a self-learning, this journey of self-learning. And then you realize, oh, well, actually, as I share this self-learning, others are learning from me. And then it's a sense of empowerment a bit. It's like, oh, this is great. Now now I'm, I know I'm writing for an audience, and that motivates me and inspires me to write for the audience, but I can't lose sight of writing for me. Because if I start trying to produce content for others – with with and just to push content out i become disconnected with my purpose and that's where i've been the last few years you know trying to stay connected to my purpose which is learning you know yeah and and that's how i have to keep reminding myself to stay anchored in what matters most you know and it is, I am doing this for me, I'm learning, but the byproduct is impacting others. The byproduct is going to do my consulting work, but I, I really enjoy the process along the way. It's, it's so powerful. And when I slip out of a routine where I'm not doing this, mm -hmm. then I get a little complacent and, and that's when the darkness comes in really. Like when, when I stop doing what I love doing and doing what I'm passionate about, you know? Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Like starting the, the website and the podcast was, it was my foray into writing myself because again, kind of going back to like learning and, and looking at your weaknesses is I always had viewed weakness, like writing as a weakness or at the very least, like categorically speaking, if I'm a technical minded person as an engineer, so that puts a really specific, image for most people, you know, you're good with numbers, you're good with things and working with your hands possibly, but you're not good with words. Like you're not good with verbal communication or even written communication. And that was very much true for the most part for me, even though I am a voracious reader, it took me a long time to get good at like the, the nitty gritty of writing, basically like finding my own voice, understanding sentence structure and things like that. And 
again, I kind of just applied the just grinding out mentality of like, okay, well, you just kind of got to start doing this and just know that you're going to suck <laughs> and you're just going to, the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And, and then just do edit after edit or whatever it takes. Even if you don't know what to edit out of it, just put it out in the wild and then keep going. Just keep moving. Cause like when this piece feels done, it feels done. And it's been super powerful for me because I, I, I just use that as another tool to be able to craft your thoughts, you know, basically taking your thoughts out of your brain and make them understandable by another person, be it in words like verbal communication or be it in written text format. And, you know, it's the, the kind of this chase to be as well-rounded of a person as you could ever be. And I just think writing is one of those really powerful things that in many ways, like conversation, we're losing because of how much short format we have in the world today where we don't have enough of this reflective period to be able to think in long form to understand like, why did I do that? Or why did I make that choice? Or why do I feel sad? <laughs> you know, if we're going to keep pulling on the mental health thread, it's like, you got to look back and have reflection time is where you kind of gain the most. And like you said, self-learning. And so it's been a lot of fun to see the progression for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the key. And it's just continuing that, that journey. And that's, that's the pursuit that, that I am on and I'm trying to share that with my boys who are 16 and 14 and, and just really trying to show them the importance of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you that's know, really that's interesting. It seems like such a different paradigm of that we're seeing lately is I just remember in school like certain things about writing felt so dated or unapproachable with such a strict grammar rules and things like that. It just did not interest me. It was just too like, it just didn't feel like it had a purpose. I guess that they didn't, they didn't give you the application, which is a huge thing for me. And like, I didn't understand like, well, it's like, I don't know what I'm writing. So I can't understand why I would want to need to put a comma in this sentence <laughs> basically. And I just think it's such a cool way that you're, you'll be able to train or like not even train, but like expose your, your sons to these ideas at a, such an early age that even if they're not like doing it now, it's going to plant a seed for them f in the future that they'll actually be able to value it and be able to go deeper on it with someone. Yeah. It's building the tools. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what we're, that's what I'm trying to do. And that's what my wife's trying to do. And, to build tools and to develop our knowledge of the tools and to apply the tools in our own lives and to model what that's like and then to have conversations um, with our boys and with our students about those things. That's cool. So the other thing we've kind of talked about, and I, I just remembered it now, was you kind of mentioned having like running with your wife, you know, in, in Japan. And I, I think that's a really cool thing because a lot of what we've been talking about sounds like this idea of like having mental flushes, so so to speak. Like when the the darkness comes knocking, you you either need to have enough of your own willpower or like a habitual thing in place to go and be like, well, this is what I do at, at this time every day. Or if this starts happening, I'm going to go out for a run and clear my head. And I've been noticing for myself like these these triggers that just kind of remove any of the baggage or negative emotions that may have accumulated over like a day, say like a work hour or work day, like over eight hour period. 
you know, like for me, it's like working out or having certain friends that you can kind of, no matter what you do, it doesn't even matter if you're doing anything, you can kind of meet up with that person, grab some lunch. And you know that by the end of it, you're just going to feel better because all you do with that person is laugh and have a good time. And it's not like it's a, it, it has to be anything like that. And, or, but I'm just curious if you yeah. look at it in this way or if you have any other tricks up your sleeve to kind of flush the negativity away. Yeah, I, I think it, it goes back to that idea of, of, of just being consistent with with exercise because I know it works for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I tinkered with, you know, I like to do the early morning runs. So I'll wake up at 4.40 in the morning. I'll get a coffee. I'll try to get out the door at 5 a.m., uh, but I might have another coffee and then I'm out at 5.20, whatever. But I, it's just this early morning exercise is key. But then over the last year, what I've tried to do more of is is an evening run. And I was never, I was always a morning runner. And then I thought, ah, if I do this evening run, it's great because then I'm checking the box for the run, mm-hmm. right? But then I found that the evening runs were helping me declutter you know, and, and really like, you know, just, I don't know, defilter, declutter, do whatever I need to do to kind of learn from the day. Like untangling knots. Yeah. And then, and then go home and have a good sleep. And then in the morning, rather than running, I go to the gym the next morning. Mm -hmm. So now I can double up, double down, you know, kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so then I, I started to tinker around with with different ways of doing that, and uh, there's some days where I'll run to the gym, which is about you know probably only two miles, but I'll I'll run to the gym, have a workout for 30 minutes, and I'll run home, and that's kind of trying to pack in a lot in a short time before work, so. I'm still trying to figure out the best formula, mm-hmm. but there is no right answer. It's just what, whatever is best. Sometimes I'm motivated to wake up, run to the gym, work out, run back home. But, you know, my advice, what has worked for me is to try to figure it out. <laughs> like, don't just sit down and do nothing. Yeah. Try, try to figure out what works for you and, and to continue to tinker and refine what you do in order to find the right recipe that works for you. And right now for me, it's, it's more running at night than the morning and, and lifting weights in, in the uh, running at night and lifting weights in the morning. Yeah. That's a really good point. I, I think a lot of people too, we, we kind of get stuck in the idea that, you know, you pick one category, especially if it's something that like you work out, like whatever you happen to start in, a lot of people, it's weightlifting, at least if you're working out post high school, you know, you get stuck in like Olympic weightlifting or bodybuilding style. And a lot of people kind of have identity force closure and say, oh, I can't, like, I, I'm a weightlifter. I don't do anything else. But there's so many more tools available to us now, be it yoga, be it running, be it CrossFit or any of the other functional stuff like kettlebells and things like that. So I would implore people to kind of if there's something of interest in any other category, just pick it up, whatever it is, and just dabble. And at the very least, go to YouTube a video and see what other people are doing or yeah. use Instagram, I think, is a really useful tool to kind of bridge the gap. And the other thing I would say is, like, not being afraid to, like, want to 
just try like giving yourself permission just to go in and, and want to do something is I think huge because it just gives yourself the opportunity to even like walk through that door or cross the finish line for that matter. Cause I, I did a lot of this stuff. So like to go more into my story, one year from deciding to enter the gym, I was like, okay, I need to give myself a goal, like a short-term goal, like you're talking about to kind of <laughs> re reiterate on this new year's stuff. And I found out about Tough Mudder. I remember re watching about like a video on Travel Channel uh, years ago and was like, wow, that's insane. I'd never do that. I like distinctly remember that thought. And I just remember thinking about it and being like, oh, that's the thing I can do because here's this, this perfect blend of, of like pushing myself mentally because it's going to be like a 10 mile run in mud and water. But also it's like, had I trained my body to do something I never thought it would, could do possibly. And, and meaning I had never run more than one mile up until I had done my 5k in preparation to, to do the Tough Mudder. So I went, basically went almost 21 years without ever running more than one mile that we have to do for our physical fitness tests. And even then I was only getting maybe like 10 minute miles. Like it's not like I'm blazing fast or good, was ever good at running back then. And then here I was, this person who thought I could never be a runner or athletic, broadly speaking. I get to Tough Mudder. I'd already done a 5K and run it at like an eight-minute pace. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I, I'd convinced a couple of my friends, too, on top of that, which made like it all gravy on it because Tough Mudder is all about teamwork and pushing each other just to get to the finish line. And I thought it was this this perfect capstone of basically warding myself against the vain pursuit of what working out could be, you know, just working out for working out sake. <laughs> and, and I did that in a super functional way and also got a lot closer to my friends in the process because we were like accomplished something difficult together. <laughs> yeah. That's that social interaction piece, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, which is huge, huge when it comes to physical activity is, is having that social interaction piece, whether it be, one friend or a group of friends, or, you know, even if you're running alone, but you know that another friend is running 15 minutes after you or whatever, you're still kind of pushing each other to, you know, be active and do these things. Yeah. It's really, it's really powerful. I, you know, and I, I feel you know, incredibly fortunate having the the social bonds that I do have with some of my friends. Like I, one of my friends, I'll have to give him a shout out here because he's been on the podcast. His name is Mike Tacona, and he was like a, a really good baseball player, always hyper athletic. But there was something about his personality that he he was always a lot like a way above and beyond my athletic abilities, especially in high school, because that's where we met and became friends but he was never the kind of person to hold it over another person and use it as like an ego boost. Like, Oh, I can do it better than you. His, his personality was much more in the sense of like, he was cheering you on and it didn't matter that he could do more than you. It was more of like, he's there to, to help you just push yourself a little bit more. <laughs> and And that was kind of one of the things that really helped me, like deconstruct my own mental image of myself basically is having someone like him who I viewed as being a way above me. And then he's just there pushing me to be better. <laughs> yeah. Supportive mm -hmm. going back to supportive, you know, and that's, that's the key, you know, yeah. and that's, that's 
that's what we need to do. It's it's really fun. All right, Andy, we're almost at a, another full hour, and we could definitely go on yeah. for many more hours. I want to do some wrap up with some of my more general questions on like the any rec- other recommended books or books you've gifted the most to people. I I would say uh, Tuesdays with Maury would be. Have you heard of that one? I have not heard of that one. Okay, Tuesdays with Maury is by a Detroit uh, free press journalist. Uh, Mitch Album is his name. And, you know, that's my go-to book. And that is a book that I wrapped up and sent to multiple friends over the years. And it's the story of a, it's a a true story of a professor in university, the student who is Mitch Album goes on to write a book about it. But the, the researcher, the, the lecturer, has a Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh. So Mitch Album documents the journey of him literally dying, but Mitch Album being by his side throughout the journey. And, and the professor shares all of his life lessons. It's a beautiful book, and uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look that into that one. I love stories like that, you know, yeah. deep and profound and meaningful. Yeah. And then to finally wrap up, if you were to give advice to a smart, driven, even not really college age, but just to paint the picture, a college age student who's maybe just entering the real world for the first time, what advice would you give them or what would you tell them to ignore? I would say, I don't want to say ignore your device because it's going to be hard to do because we live with devices now. I would say definitely keep a journal. Ignore your device when possible. When you go out with friends for dinner, be the first one to not have your phone on the table so that you can truly listen because, you know, even when we make a conscious decision to, okay, I'm not going to look at my phone. The fact that your phone is on the table, even if you flip it upside down and you can't see the alerts, you're still distracted. Be the first one to pull your phone off the table, put it in your backpack or put it in your purse and resist the temptation to pull it out. And when your friend goes to the bathroom or your friends go to the bathroom, whatever, When you're alone at the table, don't pull it out. Look around you, be present, observe others, observe the interactions of others, and the first thing you will see is people on their devices, right? You'll look at the table beside you, and you'll see a couple, you know, having dinner, and they're on their devices, and it's shocking, you know? And we've lost the ability to connect with strangers. We've lost the ability to deeply connect with others because our device is so addictive. Mm-hmm. And I have my Google phone and I, you know, I, I, I left iPhone, I, you know, last year. But, but what I'm saying is like my goal now when we go out for family dinners, there are no devices, absolutely no devices allowed. And I even tell my boys, you know, when we're sitting at a dinner table, I say, okay, I think they see that most of the tables have at least one person on their device. So, yes, we need devices, 
But my advice to a young person in university is, and this is a powerful skill that you can develop, listening and communicating and be the first one to keep your phone off the table in your bag and do not touch it till you're walking home on your own and then check Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and uh, Snapchat and all that, you know, so that's, that's my biggest advice. And I still work hard to do that myself, but I feel much better when I, I stick to, to that. Yeah. That's a powerful statement. I think, you know, I've had this intuition that anyone who can learn to manage the devices and the apps on our phones more effectively, are they going to be the ones who are successful in, in the next generation of, of people? Because, you know, these devices are basically dopamine drips to our brain and they push all the right buttons and it's up to us to figure out ways that we can limit their impact on our lives or at least the negative impact they have on our lives because obviously they do so much for us. They, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation that we're having right now if we didn't have these devices. So, yeah. so it's, it's a double-edged sword and you got to, you know, learn how to blunt one edge and keep the other edge sharp. <laughs> Absolutely. This is awesome, Andy. I really appreciate you one being able to make the time and two, going, you know, halfway around the world and still making the time to get on the phone call with a 15 hour time difference. It's truly amazing. And I'm honored. (laughs) I know I've enjoyed the conversation, Eric, and I wish you the best of luck in 2020, man. Yeah, you too. It's uh, feeding curiosity has been a wild ride and it's not going anywhere in 2020 because, you know, I'd be doing this anyways. (laughs) Already. And they're always option for a round three Great at a stuff, future man. day. <laughs> for sure. You just let me know and, and I'll be there. Sounds good. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's just, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.